Amen. Thanks, Merritt. Thanks for being here this morning in the midst of a um, surprising snowy day and snowy conditions. Uh, and thanks especially to Jeremy and Nick, who got here early this morning and shoveled a ton of snow. Um, so really appreciate so many people do so many things to make Sunday mornings happens, uh, happen, and we're really grateful for, for all that, that you all do and, and just for showing up. We're, we're grateful for that. Uh, we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus uh, has great power, that he is no ordinary man. We've seen him uh, claim the power to forgive sins. We've seen him heal the broken-bodied. We've seen him, th- that he has authority to define and declare God's commands. And we saw last week that he has the authority even to calm storms. But today in our passage that Mary read for us, we see a different kind of power that Jesus has. It's a kind of power that might make us a little bit uncomfortable. The power to overcome evil as seen in a demon-possessed man. It's a dramatic story that begins with Mark's classic immediacy. If you've read through the Gospel of Mark, the word immediately is used often. Jesus and his disciples have left the center of Jewish territory, have gone across the Sea of Galilee, and they're fresh off of Jesus calming the frightening storm. And no sooner have they landed on the shore and stepped out of the boat, then they're met by a wild man, a man coming out of the tombs, the tombs and caves, where the, was the place that the poorest of the poor, the most destitute in society, would actually go and live because they had nowhere else to go. But this man is not simply an ordinary destitute man. He is an extraordinarily broken and wrecked man. He has been possessed, oppressed, afflicted, by an unclean spirit, by an evil power, and his situation is such that no amount of power or force could control him and the evil that was at work in him. And he is living a terrible, tormented existence where people had to attempt to control him through physical force to bind him with shackles and chains, but he would heave and wrench them apart, shattering them. Evil had such a hold on this man that the end of verse 4 says that no one had the strength to subdue him. The force of evil was out of control and overpowering in him. There was no power to be found more powerful than the evil that was afflicting this man. And if you found yourself either day or night amongst the tombs of the Gerasenes, you would hear crying out, wailing, likely in anguish and desperation as this man harmed himself, cutting himself with stones so that his apparently naked body was marked by scars and bloody gashes, not to mention the dirt and grime. And we don't know if this self-harm was driven by the evil spirits or if he was so desperate that he was trying to put himself out of his misery. But either way, the picture that is painted of this man is grievous and heinous. It's hard to even turn our mind's eye to let ourselves look at him. Maybe you've seen a similar degree of sin, evil, and the torn fabric of our world wrecking human beings. War, addictions, homelessness, isolation, and starvation, leaving people with empty eyes and tattered minds, bodies torn and emaciated. And if you have ever looked into those eyes then you've caught a glimmer of the picture painted of this helpless and hopeless man in this passage. 
But how do we begin to process demon possession? It might be tempting for us to dismiss this story as strange and extraordinary. After all, in the Western world, we tend to think only of demons as a plot device for a cheap movie scare. Or maybe something that religious extremes see in every unlucky break. We've often reasoned our way out of seeing evil as a real personal force because, quite frankly, it's pretty uncomfortable. But if we dismiss this story and what is captured in it, we will continue to have an anemic understanding of evil. We sometimes have a category for personal good, even if you're not religious, the sort of idea that there's some force out there that's, that's seeking to do something good. There's some greater power out there, but the scriptures teach us that there is both personal good and personal evil, and that neither are inanimate forces, but are personal and intentional. They have real aims and real intentions in the world. So what does demon possession have to do with us? Well, actually, I hope that you can see with me this morning that it has to do a great deal. Because what is revealed in this passage and what this man in his, in his utter spiritual oppression reveals to us is the nature of spiritual enslavement and the purposes of personal evil. What happens when a human being has been taken over by evil? What happens when we fall into the traps of the evil one? There's a couple things that I think we see in this story that are common for all of us when we fall into the traps of the evil, of the evil one. And the first one is this, we become isolated. It paints this picture of this man who is in the tombs and mountains. These are not exactly places of deep community. His spiritual enslavement has kept him from being able to maintain relationships with other human beings. We can even be social creatures, but more and more we begin to retreat into ourselves and to solitude and loneliness. There's a piece of us when we're trapped by evil that no one knows, and we don't want anyone to know. But not only is it isolating, we also become self-destructive. It says that the man, in his spiritual enslavement, it led him to physically harm himself. It is taking his very life. We're capable of making decisions that we never thought we would make, taking risks, dismissing people we love. Our pride, for example, always makes us less human. The things that we do, overeating or undereating, rebel against our body's design. Pornography thwarts our relationships. Our manipulation of others at the end of the day leaves us all alone. Evil, when we submit to its power, it isolates us and it also is self-destructive but it also leaves us powerless to change. It says in verse 4 that he had often been bound with shackles and chain. This has been going on for a long time, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Neither he nor anyone around him had the power to change his state. Sin and evil, when we are given over to it, is isolating, self-destructive, and renders us powerless. Powerless. Now, obviously, demon possession is certainly an extreme version of being oppressed by evil. But when we are enslaved to any number of things, pornography, success, food, pride, alcohol, drugs, work, you name it, we are subjected to these very things. 
isolation, self-destruction, and ultimately powerless to change. But in all of that, what I want us to see is that evil is not just an inanimate force. It's personal. It has an aim. And until we see evil as personal, we will not see that it has an aim and purpose. And what is its purpose? It is intent on obliterating the image of God from humankind. William Lane, a theologian and commentator on this passage, says, Every word of this passage emphasizes this man's pathetic condition. In the several features of the descriptions, the purpose of demonic possession is to distort and destroy the divine likeness of man. And this is more and more made indelibly clear. The purpose of evil in this man and in the world and throughout all of human history in our very lives is to snuff out the image of God and everything that points to his goodness and his glory. If we go back all the way to the beginning of the story in the Garden of Eden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to see God as stingy and withholding. He convinced them that it would be better for them to trust in themselves and to become like gods themselves than to live as creatures made in his image and to trust in his goodness. This oppressive evil has made this man seem more like a wild animal than a human being. It is intent on destroying the reflection of the one true God in him. Theologians note that when the 2,000 pigs ran down the steep bank into the sea and drowned, it demonstrates evil's intention to destroy God's good creation. That was its ultimate aim. And it is demonstrated in the destruction of these pigs. And beloved, when we engage with our sin, when we leave the door open for our pride, when we overwork or use people to get a leg up or dismiss people to feel good about ourselves, when we decide that our personal self-expression is the truest road to happiness, When we put our trust in our bank accounts, when we put our hope for peace in our chosen politician, we are not engaging with neutral realities. We are cooperating with something real and personal, the forces of evil, whose aim is to mar the image of God and lead us away from trusting his goodness and taking glory that is owed to God and God alone. This is why 1 John 3, verses 7, and 9, 7 through 9 can say something to us that seems maybe extreme, but makes complete sense in the biblical narrative. We have it up here on the screen. It says this, Little children, beloved, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as, he is, as Jesus is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sin, of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because because he has been born of God. Now, there's a lot of clarifications that need to be made from this passage because I'm not reading the full context. John isn't saying that Christians don't sin anymore. Just two chapters earlier, he said that if anyone says he is without sin, he's a liar. And that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But what John is saying with utter clarity is this, that sin 
is not a neutral reality. Especially practicing ongoing sin that we aren't turning away from. It is cooperating with the personal forces of evil, with the intent of the evil one. Evil's aim is to mar the image of God, to lead us away from trusting his goodness and to take glory that is owed to God and to God alone. The isolation and self-destruction and powerlessness we feel are symptoms of its greater purpose. And this dramatic story reveals the aim of evil to us. But if that is all true, then where is the hope for enslaved people? For people who cower to pride, idolatry, selfishness, addiction, and self-focused ambition. If it's so powerful, what is our hope? Verse 6 tells us that when this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran to him and fell down before him. And when he fell down before Jesus, he cried with a loud voice like a desperate scream, saying, what do you have to do with me, Jesus the son of the most high God. And it appears that the demons, not the man, are pleading, pleading that Jesus would not torment them because they know who Jesus is. He has already been commanding them to come out of the man. And why are the demons crying out, adjuring, pleading? Because they know that in a land where there was no power to be found more powerful than the evil afflicting this man, in a world where evil so often seems to win the day again and again in war and addictions and greed in our everyday lives, where we often succumb to old patterns of pride and idolatry and selfishness and addiction and self-focused ambition, a greater power has arrived. For the man so oppressed by evil that no one had the strength to subdue him, one has arrived who can not only subdue him, but renew him. And evil knows it. Understanding will have to submit to the word of Jesus. And Jesus asks, what is your name? And the spirit reply, spirits reply with no singular name, but with legion. For this man, it was not just one evil spirit, one facet of evil to fight. It was legion, many. In the Roman army, a legion represented 6,000 men. It's not likely indicating that there were 6,000 spirits, but it's saying many evil spirits, a host, an army of them were tormenting him. Few of us can resist one or two sins, a couple of temptations from the evil one. But when, we're, but when we are bombarded on every side, it seems like a lost cause. How could we ever change? How can a man so profoundly oppressed as this one ever find freedom? But the spirits beg because they know they don't have power over the Jesus that speaks to them. They beg to enter the, the pigs and Jesus allows it and suddenly this man is unleashed from the legion powers of evil. They enter the 2,000 pigs, which immediately rush down the bank into the sea and are destroyed. And as you can imagine, this caused a bit of a stir. 
The herdsmen who were responsible for these pigs fled, telling everyone in the city and in the country what had happened, and people, presumably hordes of them, come out to see what had happened. And what did they see? Did they see a freak with a little less power now that the demons had gone out of him? Did they see a man muttering mindlessly to himself and making everyone feel a little awkward? No. When they came out, they came and they saw Jesus. And they saw this man who had been wild and wretched, self-destructive and isolated, who had been powerless to change and whom they had no power to change, a man who they had seemed to fear and who had been banished to the place of outcasts among the tombs. And the man was sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. Do you see what's happening here? The purpose of evil was to destroy the image of God in this man, to snuff out and ruin him like they snuffed out and ruined the pigs. But when Jesus intervenes, when Jesus speaks by the word of his power against the forces of evil, not only do they flee, But the image of God is restored in this broken man. Where evil is out to destroy the image of God and humanity, Jesus has come to restore it. In fact, Jesus is the first human being to get being human right. So that in him and by his power, you and I, who are twisted by pride and vainglory, insecurity and mistrust, addiction and anxiety who are trying desperately to make life work apart from the living God, could be restored into his image as creatures again, in our right minds, freed from the tyranny of trying to be our own gods, restored into the freedom of trusting a good God. And beloved, isn't that good news? That no matter how much pornography or overwork, Anxiety or alcoholism, passivity or controlling parenting may have had a hold on you. It is no match for the authority that Jesus has over sin and evil. And the wild man who had been oppressed by legion demons was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Praise be to God. In light of this incredible redemption and restoration, we might expect the people to worship and rejoice and give their lives over to follow Jesus. But strangely, that's not what we find. It says in verse 15 that the people were afraid. And in verse 17 that they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. What? Now, perhaps the herdsmen were a bit put out by losing 2,000 pigs, and that could be somewhat understandable. But even so, it would betray that they cared more about their possessions than about the utterly oppressed and downcast being restored by the Son of God. But I think what's going on here is more than just being put out by a loss of property. They knew Jesus was incredibly powerful more powerful than the forces of evil in this man that they could not control. But here's the thing. They were more comfortable with predictable and what had become to them familiar evil than they were with the radical redemption that Jesus brings. 
The reality is, beloved, that we human beings, mired as we may be in regrettable patterns, may not be comfortable with a power that we cannot comprehend or control, and that might actually require us to change. We are a people who both desperately want to have the image of God restored in us, to be freed from anxiety, depression, addiction, insecurity, and who at the same time want to go our own way with a predictable brokenness rather than looking to God in faith. Sometimes we'll take the devil we know over the redemption that requires our whole selves. But the man in this story who knows the depth of his powerlessness, who's had to come full on to face it with honesty, and has had possibly the most unadulterated experience of evil that anyone could have, he cannot imagine a future in which he is not with his Savior. It is telling how consistently Mark notes that this man, especially in his last couple of verses, was the man. It's the same man who is terribly possessed by the demons, as if to say, yes, that man, he wants to be with Jesus. He who was once utterly lost beyond the pale of unrecognizable humanity, he has been found. He was once the mouthpiece of the demons, begging that they not be sent away, and now he is begging that he might be with Jesus and go wherever Jesus goes. But Jesus actually doesn't permit him to go with Jesus. And it's not because Jesus is heartless or doesn't care about the man, but because the full restoration of this man's image of God, humanity, it's not simply pietistic. It's not just between him and Jesus. The restoration of this man in the image of God means that he has a purpose and a mission. Jesus calls this man to restore the relationships that have been wrecked by the forces of evil. Relationships that previously were no doubt estranged. And Jesus says in verse 19, go home to your friends. You can have them now. And tell how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And the man went, following wherever Jesus called him to go. He tells us that he went to the Decapolis, which is these 10 cities on this side of the Sea of the Galilee, and he proclaimed how much Jesus had done for him. And it says that everyone marveled. Not only did Jesus overcome the seemingly undefeatable powers of evil in this man, he restored him to a new humanity, a humanity that is on mission to see sin and evil redeemed in every sphere in every place, and first through the humble act of exposing the reality of his desperation, and second by revealing the beauty of the mercy that God had had upon him. So what do we do with all of this? There's a lot in this passage. But beloved, first we need to see that evil is not just powerful, it's personal. Its aim is to destroy the image of God in humanity, to keep us from trusting God's goodness and to steal away God's glory. But beloved, we need to see in this passage that Jesus is greater 
that he is more powerful than the forces of evil, and he alone ultimately can free us from what we are powerless to change. We are called into what Ephesians 6 verses 11 and 12 calls us to, and it says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This passage goes on to enumerate that to push back on the forces of darkness, what we are called to do is that we must equip ourselves with, the script, with what the scriptures teach us. That we are to remember that we are covered with the righteousness of Jesus. We're to be ready to move out into the world with the good news of the peace from God and to pray fervently for his work and help. We have to recognize that the personal aims of evil are real and active and push back on them by looking to the power that God alone provides. But we also have to recognize that sometimes we're resistant to change, that we'd rather have familiar, controllable evil than a Savior who asks everything of us. But His aim for us is greater than our aim for ourselves. It's to restore our humanity. Now, you may have wondered why Jesus in this passage doesn't just obliterate the demons, why He didn't destroy them, why He allowed them to enter the pigs, we're not told explicitly in this passage why Jesus didn't do that, but we are given a pattern in Jesus' miracles throughout the Gospels. We see this pattern that even as Jesus puts an end to sickness and death and disaster in certain situations and certain people, that Jesus is demonstrating that his kingdom and his reign is broken into our world, that he is on the move, and he's giving us a picture of what final victory will look like. But it's also clear that it is not yet the time of final triumph. Jesus in the Gospels is demonstrating his purpose by drawing a line in the sand, restoring the image of God in this man. But it is not the time of final triumph and redemption. But as Jesus inches towards the cross through the Gospel of Mark, he moves towards vanquishing one of the most powerful tools of the evil one. The accusation of God's people. The thing about the accusations of the evil one, if you're familiar with these, which most of you probably just call these your self-doubts or the things that uh, you can't get past or shame or whatever, and of course those are probably accurate explanations of them too. But the thing about the accusations of the evil one is that they're usually couched in truth. If he were to accuse us of pride, selfishness, lust, greed, overwork, anxious, controlling, or fearful passivity, he would probably be right. But the second half of his accusation is that because of those things, there is no kindness, mercy, or trustworthiness in God. But in the cross, Jesus flips the script. So Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11 says this, these beautiful words that point to Jesus' ultimate triumph. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, 
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Even if the accusations of the evil one are true, we who are feeble, weak, and prone to fall into temptation, we conquer the evil one and his accusations not by our own strength, but by the blood of the Lamb. In the cross, Jesus inaugurated his upside-down kingdom, vanquishing the powers of evil by his perfect sacrifice, and even as we await his full and final kingdom that will come in power, we fight not on our own strength, but by the mercy of God, knowing that there is only one voice worth trusting, not the voice of the accuser, not the voice of man, not ours or otherwise, but the voice of the slain lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Would you pray with me before we jump into some questions? Father, we come this morning uh, (laughs) overwhelmed by this passage that is full of all kinds of things that we if we're honest, rarely think about most of us. We ask, Lord, that you would protect us from chiefly just being curious about things that seem weird to us, but instead, Lord, to see with clarity what the world is like, that we battle not against flesh or blood, but against powers and principalities. And because that is true, we cannot turn to our own power and strength. But thanks be to God that you are more powerful than even the greatest forces of evil in this world, and certainly more powerful than the sin that so often overtakes us. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the faith to believe this, that you would show us your goodness and your greatness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let me take a couple of uh, quick questions here. There's a lot of questions this morning, which I figured there would be. Um, let's see. All right. Well, I think I answered that question, actually. Why would Jesus give permission to the demons to destroy 2,000 pigs? Uh, the pigs and their owners are innocent, and the pig's death would seem to make it harder for the man with the legion to reenter society. That's fair. Um, but I think Jesus has bigger fish to fry. That's not to say that he's dismisses those things or doesn't care about them. Uh, but as I, as I mentioned, um, I think the clear, the clear reality is to see in a radical scene for people to see and to talk about the reality of what the purposes of evil are. When you see 2,000 pigs rush down a steep bank into the sea and drowned, you're like, there are powerful forces of evil, <laughs> and their aim is destruction. Um, so I think it, it sets so clearly in the gospel of Mark and for the people who observe and for the, the word that spreads that there is actually a battle between two kingdoms in this world, between good and evil. Okay, in the more extreme cases of humans descending into spiritual enslavement, is there a consistent role of the human's choice slash will to allow enslavement through sin versus, big word, uh, con 
I can't even read this, even though I know this word. Concupiscence, nope, concupiscence, concupiscence, boy. I've heard this word, but I could not get it out. Concupiscence, by that I mean being born into sin like everyone, but perhaps with less access to the fruits of common grace than others, i.e. worse family structures, poverty, abuse, physical enslavement, etc. Um, man, this is a great question. I, I, I get the, the, the sort of foundation of the question is this, is this question of like, are there things that we do that cause us to be more enslaved um, versus is just the stuff that happens to us? And I think the answer, of course, is, is both. We can certainly do things um, that more deeply enslave us. And also, part of what I, I didn't really talk about in the sermon, but what I want us, I, I sort of said this uh, passively, but, but not particularly directly, I think that when we read a passage like this, or when we think about things like extreme addictions, heroin addiction, for example, addictions that really obviously wreck people's lives and just even physically tear people apart, wreck relationships, et cetera, that's so grievous uh, to see and is so obvious to see, I think it's easy for us to sort of look at those things and say, that is real spiritual enslavement. And part of what I want us to recognize this morning is that sometimes the most powerful spiritual enslavement is the one that we don't recognize, the things that we don't see, the things that aren't so obvious. And that's part of why I brought up things like putting our hope in self-expression as the means to happiness, because that's something that seems very subtle and normal to us. And I want us to see that actually cooperating with spiritual enslavement is not just the really obvious things that mean that you have to get into a treatment plan. Those things actually, in some ways, when you get into a treatment plan, not that those things are easy to beat, they are not, they're incredibly difficult, but it's at least very obvious there's a problem and I cannot on my own beat this. But for all of us, we live so much of our lives believing that we got this that we have the power to defeat this thing. And beloved, I want to tell you this morning that that is the more dangerous of the two. And that's why it's so important for us to see this extreme scenario that demonstrates to us something that is true for all of us. The power is not in our own flesh and blood to fight against the cosmic forces. We need Jesus on our side. We need a Savior who has lived a perfect life that we could not live and who has died a death that we could not die and who has risen to life to prove that his power is more powerful than the forces of evil. That's not a direct answer to the question, but hopefully it gets us pointed in the right direction. (laughs) Um, I'm going to stop there, even though there's more questions here. Um, But if there's anything that comes up in this, um, especially just that's really personal, that brings up difficult things. I would love to talk more about those things. Um, I certainly don't want to diminish the reality of the struggle of addiction um, in talking about these things. In fact, I want us to see how powerful it is, but also that its work is, is more subtly at work in all of us. Um, so that being said, let's move um, toward, to the Lord's table. Let me pray for us as, as we do that, actually. Uh, Father, as we move to the table um, this morning, uh, there's a lot that comes up in us in these passages, and we are aware that, uh, that we're probably kind of uncomfortable. 
there's a lot that is not comfortable about this passage. And we ask, Lord, that you would, uh, we don't ask that you would make us comfortable. We ask instead, Jesus, that you would help us to see where true comfort is found. That we would not be prone so much to just avoid realities that don't feel comfortable. That, but instead that we would put our hope in the only place that ultimately can bring redemption and not only stop the awkwardness and uncomfortableness of evil, but that can actually bring restoration and renewal. Lord, we long for that. We need that. Would you bring it, please, by your spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name.